you know, standing on the start line with 18,000 miles, 27,000 kilometers ahead of you, you, I mean, I knew that I wouldn't sleep for more than five hours in, in two and a half months. Out of your bed at half three in the morning, on the bike at four, riding four times four hour sets, so about 16 hours a day on the bike. So that sheer just battle of attrition, that, that the, the, just the sheer scale of that not injuring, keeping going, yeah, it hurts, it hurts, it hurts a hell of a lot. for taking the time to listen to the Hard as Nails podcast which is brought to you by Islands Adventure Magazine Outsider.ie in association with Great Outdoors Dublin who always strive to give their customers the best possible service and top quality equipment for any adventure big or small whether you're looking for a camping kit for your next overnight stay in the hills or gear that will help get you through your expedition safely or even just a waterproof jacket for your commute to work Great Outdoors always has your back go check out their website www www.greatoutdoors.ie or you can visit the store if you are in Dublin on Chatham Street just off Grafton Street. My name's Kevin and hey this is our 10th episode we've reached double digits and uh, to commemorate this mini milestone we have lined up a remarkable guest for you. He is a legendary long distance British cyclist and adventurer who holds the record for cycling around the world in 78 days. He's also cycled across the Americas and from Cairo to Cape Town setting a new record in his Africa solo challenge and he's also a documentary maker and author and a corporate ambassador it's none other than Mark Beaumont Mark we truly are honored to have you join us on the Hard as Nails podcast thank you for this incredible opportunity for us and our listeners hey a pleasure thanks for having me fantastic well Mark I'm desperate to hear all about your epic around the world in 80 days challenge which of course was inspired by the the classic adventure novel by uh, Jules Verne but before we dive right in let's first get an understanding as to why you enjoy cycling so much. I mean, I assume you still do enjoy cycling, considering what you've put your body through over the years. How did you get into cycling? I mean, uh, yes, yes, I do. I still ride my bike a lot. But to be fair, since since last September, when I got back to Paris in 78 days, I've not been doing quite so many endurance miles. I don't have that 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 mega miles itch to scratch right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been I've been riding for fun. I've been racing my penny farthing recently, but we can chat about okay. that after. Um, but um, yeah, I got into cycling really young. I, I had a bit of an odd start to life, and so far as I was, I was homeschooled in the in the Highlands of Scotland. I didn't go to school until I was twelve. So, being outside, being in the outdoors, was was just everything I knew for the first decade of my life. Mm. Um, you know, when you sit around the kitchen table doing an hour or two of subjects, but the rest of the time you've got a farm to run. You know, we had, you know, the the all the animals to look after and. I spent my entire time skiing and climbing and horse riding and cycling and it was just, you know, I wasn't thinking I was doing sport. I was just, I was just being a kid. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, my, 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 my buddies, my friends for the first decade of my life were my two sisters. We were too, we were so, we were so rural. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I went to high school and suddenly the sports were a lot more sort of, um, a lot more formal, you know, it was football and rugby and, and I, I wasn't used to that. And, you yeah. know, I, I, I was, you know, still very much pushing my ambitions on the bike and mm-hmm. and, uh, and in, in the mountains. So, I mean, I first had the idea to go on a journey when I was 11, and that was, mm-hmm. I went across Scotland. I cycled um, Dundee to Oban, about 100 and, 135 miles, about 200k, oh, and wow. um, 
Yeah, I loved it. And that was that was kind of where it all started. Wow. So would you say that was the moment for you when you realized that you could endure these long distance uh, bike rides? I mean, because also at the age of 15, you completed a solo ride across the length of Great Britain. Yeah, the classic end to end in, in the UK, John O'Goose Land's End was mm-hmm. my first thousand miler, my first uh, my first solo ride as well. Mm. I don't think anyone just wakes up and realizes they're good at ultra endurance. You've yeah. got to build your tolerance. You've got to build your ability to suffer. <laughs> you've got to, <laughs> yeah. you've got to, you also got to build your ability to yeah, just think your way through the challenge. I mean, ultra endurance is not about being the most powerful, fastest rider. It's about not injuring mm-hmm. and it's about mental resilience. Mm-hmm. So most, most bike riders, you know, if you compare me to a tour rider, I mean, I could not do what they do and they could not do what I do. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different sport. Um, but the if you if you look, think of the distances that I'll typically cover, I mean, last year, you know, doing about 400k a day, you know, about 240, 250 miles a day mm-hmm. every day for two and a half months. Your average pro rider might do that for a week or so, but then just break down, you know, mentally and physically. Mm-hmm. So it's a different it's a different ability and skill set. So I've spent the last 23 years since I was a 12 year old kid building up the ability to do this. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I, I applaud ambition you know when people get in touch and say i want to do these mega expeditions you know i'm always shoot for the stars but i'm also a big fan of learning your trade you have to in terms of comfort zones built up over time to know where where your tolerance is i mean anyone can do this stuff but it takes time Mm. well as you mentioned you you built up this tolerance uh, for for endurance uh, cycling and uh, to the point where 10 years ago uh, it was your first circumnavigational biker tour of the world unsupported where did the idea come from and was breaking that record always the goal well i guess i've always been in a hurry i mean even when i was a kid cycling across europe and scandinavia and doing smaller trips i, I always mm-hmm. liked the idea of both going on an adventure you know living wild every night figuring out where where your next meal is all the adventures sports side of stuff but also still pushing the distances i'd be a rubbish nomadic traveler you know i'm not one of these people that can just wake up each day and go well you know i'll go whichever way the wind blows i've always i've always been in a hurry Mm -hmm. but i've never i've never raced so uh, to be fair when i when i left university with a perfectly useful economics and politics degree i thought i was going to be an accountant i thought i was going to work in finance Mm -hmm. um because that's what all the kids around me were doing you know that's what was just being talked about and then I thought, you know what, why don't I just go on one adventure to end all adventures? This was not meant to be the start of a career. Mm-hmm. Um, my uh, my father still doesn't think it is. <laughs> I joke. But, yeah. uh, but it's, it, it's a sense of, at the time, you know, you could easily reverse engineer the last 13, 14 years of my career. And it kind of looks inevitable because there's clear stepping stones from one to the next. Yeah. But let me tell you, it was never that way. There's once I finish a project, there was always a clear horizon to what came next. But it wasn't like I ever sat there and said, you know, I'm going to make a TV career and I'm going to become a professional adventurer. Mm. The um, the first ambition, I thought, look, if I've only got one chance to go on a big a big ride to end all rides before I go back and work in a work in an office, um, let's cycle around the world. Mm. You know, what's you know that's that's the ultimate. And um, I assumed, I wrongly assumed, I assumed that the the circumnavigation world record mm-hmm. would be the most coveted, most professional race out there. I thought, like the sailing record, it would be the biggest prize in the sport. Mm-hmm. I mean, think of the scale of cycling. It's the world. It should be the ultimate. <laughs> yeah. Now, now we're talking 12 years ago now. Mm-hmm. It had barely been looked at. Um, now, about five people had gone for the record that stood at the time. And the record stood at 276 days. Mm-hmm. 
And and those people who had gone for the record had very much done it as a wild man adventure as opposed to a race. Mm-hmm. So the record stood at 276 days. Um, and I don't want to be disparaging about anyone who's ridden 18,000 miles, but, mm-hmm. you know, I did think that was uh, easily beatable. So I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe my luck. I, I saw that and I thought, why is that not being done properly? It was more a moment of enterprise than a bike ride because I just thought, wow, you know, I'm, why have the last three people come home within a matter of a week of each other? You could smash that. You could absolutely take that to another level. Mm. And that's what I that's what I did. 2007, 2008, I came home in 194 days, 17 hours. So we took, wow. you know, we took, took took a chunk off that. Yeah, definitely. Well, that around the world cycling record, it, it was broken by uh, Vin Cox uh, just uh, two years later. That's until 2017, Mark, when, when you did it all over again. But this time you completed the 18,000 miles in an unbelievable 78 days and 14 hours. First of all, Mark, how, how similar was this challenge compared to when you did the first bike ride around the world? Similar by name, but that's it. It's the same record insofar as it's the circumnavigation world record. But um, you mentioned Vin Cox, an amazing English rider. Quite a few people broke the record over the years. It was actually laterally held by Andrew Nicholson, um, uh, an Olympian, a a New Zealander. So a whole ton of people went for the record in the decades since. Um, And it sort of evolved from touring style you know, five tiny bags going fully laden to bike packing, going ultra light, uh, and then laterally you know, taking more and more support. So Andrew Nicholson had mm-hmm. support with him across parts of Australia and New Zealand, but then was unsupported in other parts. Mm-hmm. Because there is no differentiation between unsupported and supported with these records, there is between team and solo and male and female records, but Guinness World Records see the whole supported, unsupported as a bit of a sliding scale. Mm-hmm. Like what is supported? Is getting getting kit sent down the road to you? Is that supported? So inevitably all of these, races these records will become fully supported it's the only way to go really fast and yeah. make it just about performance mm. um so so that's why i'm saying that it's the same record insofar as it's still eighteen thousand miles and it's still how fast can you get around the planet mm-hmm. but you can't compare the two i mean 10 years ago it was a proper wild man adventure whereas what i just pulled off with my team mm-hmm. you know it took three years in the planning i had about 40 people working on the project I had two support trucks with me the whole time. I had one job, and that was to race the bike. Mm. Well, your previous experience, though, Mark, when you did it uh, 10 years ago, did that come in handy at all? Or because the gap was just so vast between the two, had the knowledge you gained from the first ride become irrelevant last year? Yeah, I mean, it all it all, it all counts, doesn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. any any adventure, any athlete, any bike rider will know, you know, you you <laughs> the physicality, for sure. I mean, you know, the... the your adaption to the bike, you just become a better bike rider. Your 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 resolve, the the, the mindset, because you've been there before. Uh, the physiology, the psychology, it's, it all counts for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you need to train specifically for a, an individual challenge, but you know you're a culmination of your your life events. So everything, you know, I think if I'd done nothing for ten years and uh, gone back and driven a computer for a living, then yeah, I would have had a problem. But mm-hmm. You know, I took that experience from 2007, 2008, the first 18,000 mile race. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I took that in many different directions. You know, a nine month journey down the Americas, breaking the Africa record, Mm -hmm. ocean rowing for three and a half years through the Arctic and the Atlantic, Mm -hmm. some mountaineering trips. And I think quite a lot of those challenges just pushed me in such different directions that Mm -hmm. it gave me the confidence more than anything else to come back and go, do you know what? 
we're not just trying to pip this record. We're not trying to beat it. But what what leap in performance can we make? What if if we really get this dialed? If we get the best professional team working at tempo, what's possible? And that's where we dreamt up the eighty days. Remarkable. But Mark, do you think that this record can it be broken? I hope so. <laughs> I mean, I'm not one of these people that feels I need to hold on to my records forever and a day. Mm-hmm. It's um, I kind of feel that records get validated by by other people going for them. Mm. What I would say is. In my mind, the 80 days is a bit of a one-time prize. You know, you don't need to be a PR genius to get the hook. You know, the, the, around the world in 80 days is a phrase and a story known the world over. Mm. So, I mean, you know, tell, tell me the second person that broke a, the four-minute mile or the second person who climbed Everest. You know, <laughs> there's, there's, there's certain prizes in sport which are sort of one-time prizes. So mm. as soon as I realized with my logistics team that you could possibly get around the world in 80 days, I said to my team, we have to do that. That's not the punchline on the finish line. That's not what we do at the end. That's what we go out day one and claim. We claim this, where we are going to get around the world in 80 days because there is such a a value around that. And if you go for the record now, which I dearly hope that people will do, Mm -hmm. um, you're not going to be able to get the same earned media value, build the same sort of media interest and and, and PR around it because you're now fighting for the record. So if you consider we took 39% off the previous best, Mm you're not going to take another 39% off the record. No. You might be able to go an hour an hour faster, a day faster, mm-hmm. but you're going to need to be incredibly well financed, be a professional rider with a professional team, and the risk and reward is now higher because you're going to be fighting for hours or maybe a day. So it's the nature of things. Mm-hmm. I hope that people will go for the record, but... Um, since last September, no, nobody's put their hand up yet. <laughs> I can imagine why. Very interesting. Now, Mark, now the physical challenges, obviously, for this expedition, they were monumental. I mean, uh, what would you say was the toughest moment physically for you during these uh, 78 days, considering you were covering approximately uh, 240 miles per day, as you touched on earlier? The sheer duration of it. I mean, anyone who do, does ultra-endurance will understand what sleep deprivation and how that affects you and the stress. Mm-hmm. You know, standing on the start line with 18,000, miles, 27,000 kilometers ahead of you. you. I mean, I knew that I wouldn't sleep for more than five hours in, in two and a half months. Mm-hmm. I knew I'd be racing, you know, out of your bed at half three in the morning on the bike at four, riding four times four hour sets, so about 16 hours a day on the bike. So that sheer just battle of attrition, that, that the, the, just the sheer scale of that, not injuring, keeping going, yeah, it hurts. It hurts, it hurts a hell of a lot. Mm-hmm. But um, there were specific things along the road. Like day nine, I was just east of Moscow. I cleared Europe fast. I cleared Europe at the speed of a country a day, six okay. countries in six days. And then just, just east, of, east of Moscow in the dark and in the rain, I crashed pretty hard. And I fell on my face and my left hand outstretched. So I had some wobbly teeth. I cracked my canine tooth in two and I fractured my radio head. So I had a, I had a crack through my elbow. So from that point on, you know, the roads in Russia stay really tough. And um, yeah, there was, <laughs> there was some serious pain management going on. Mm-hmm. When you're when you're time trialing, you know, when you're sitting on those tri bars and, uh, you know, sitting in that position for 16 hours a day on a cracked elbow, that, that was a real problem. Jeez. And you're trying to put, and you're trying to put 8,000 calories of food down with wobbly teeth and broken teeth. So, um, there was quite a lot of issues from for a while, and then I nearly gave myself some bad secondary uh, injuries because I was riding so lopsidedly, trying to protect the weight off my left elbow mm-hmm. that you know my right knee flared up, my neck, you know, my my right arm. So all the consequences from riding badly because I was just trying to protect from the injury. Mm. Well, when I learnt 
that you were riding roughly 16 hours a day, sleeping five hours continuously for those 78 days. It, it just blew my mind. But the question is, though, Mark, does it get easier? Did, did you get into some sort of routine after a while or was it completely the opposite? Um, it never gets easy. Mm-hmm. Um, I would defy anyone to say, uh, you know, 16 hours back to back. Anyone can do that who's fit, you know, once, fresh-legged, they can crack 240. Mm-hmm. But that's not your best day and it's not a one-off effort. You've got to do it every single day and it's your average. Mm-hmm. So um, it never gets easy. But it's like, so every morning we took saliva swabs, which would show my uh, hormone levels, all sorts of telltales, you know, my, my um, immune system. And my cortisol, so my stress hormone, stayed sky high. It stayed, you know, absolutely rocketed for, for, for two and a half months, mm-hmm. which showed that I was absolutely wired. It's amazing what you can do for your, to yourself when you you know, when you train towards an event like this. I mean, any athlete will know what that feels like, but it's quite uncommon to stay in that state for two and a half months. So my point is, you know, at half past three every morning, nobody ever had to wake me up. You know, I was I was completely switched on, and that is not a particularly healthy place to, to keep yourself. So, so I guess my point is, it doesn't get easy, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like I was dragging my heels. Like, I was... Mm-hmm. I was the most eager of any of my team. Like I, you know, I was, I was, I was absolutely racing. And so the consequence from that, which again, a lot of athletes will understand is the challenge doesn't come during the event, although it's brutal is afterwards, because when you come back to normality, whatever that is, mm-hmm. when your cortisol drops back, when all, when all your, your bloods return to normal from, you know, the stress and strain you've been putting your body under, mm-hmm. it's a hell of a roller coaster. It really is. I mean, psychologically and physically, it's a, the, the two, three months after I finished were, were, were quite something. And that's something that not a lot of athletes or performance athletes, endurance adventurers talk about, mm. you know, what happens after the back of putting yourself under that amount of stress. Yeah, that, that's so true. And you mentioned it there right there, Mark, you're saying that, that battle between the physical and the psychological. Because I heard your, your performance manager, Laura Penhall, she was saying that while you experienced, obviously, your physical dips during the challenge, it was your mental strength and positive attitude that uh, you had quite an abundance of. Quite interesting to hear her say that. So so would you say that the physical demands outweighed the psychological test during the challenge? Uh, that's tough, isn't it? Because, I mean, they're, to- they're so interrelated. Mm-hmm. It's ultimately about your mind. I mean, you, ultra-endurance is ultimately about your... You can, you can be... I, I mean, I, I am not the world's best bike rider. I'm six foot three and 90 kilos. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I am not your world's best bike rider. My, my, my strength is 23 years of building up the mindset to be able to do these things, 100%. You, you know, to do ultra-endurance... I mean, I know, I'm, I know and I'm friends with a lot of pro riders. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have the willpower, the want to do what I do. Uh, and I couldn't pull the speeds and the hill climbs that they do. So it's just a different thing. And, um, yeah, ultimately, as I say, the physicality to build, I mean, to talk through the training I did for the two years to build up to it, building the all-round conditioning. You know, it's not just about going out and doing long tempo rides. Mm. It's about having that, you know, that ability to not break down. Your your body naturally just starts just 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 fading away or suffering or injury or getting repetitive strains when you put put yourself through something like this. Mm -hmm. So the training is pretty brutal. Mm -hmm. Training through the ranges properly, uh, you know, really, really pushing yourself hard in training so you're not just used to going out and doing tempo rides. Mm -hmm. And then when you get out there, it switches. It's just about, well, this is actually easier physically than I've ever trained, Mm -hmm. but you have to do it for longer, much longer. I mean, I was racing for 1,200 hours. You know, I was was in the saddle for 1,200 hours. So ultimately, 
it's ultimately about it's, it's, it's got to be about the way you think through that but you have to have a body that can deal with that mm. yep so important and at the end of the challenge mark you you describe the whole experience for yourself as the longest two and a half months of your life was there ever a moment during the 78 days where you thought to yourself hey i might not be able to finish this i don't think i gave myself that breathing space okay. um there was never a point in the road where i wasn't racing there was never a point in the road where I, and people often ask about the crisis points, you know, the, the crashes. I crashed three times and you know, other stuff happened. The reality is the clock never stops. Mm-hmm. And you're so committed, you're so in it, that you're kind of trusting your team to call the shots. You know, it was their job to get me around the world. It was my job just to ride the bike. Mm-hmm. So I kind of trusted my logistics manager. And you mentioned Laura Penhall, my performance manager. I, people often ask me, did you ever consider quitting or completely giving up? Mm-hmm. And the reality is, you kind of go into idiot mode after a while when you're really sleep deprived and you're pushing it hard on the bike. Mm-hmm. And again, if you're an endurance bike rider, you'll know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. You don't have the capacity. You don't have the objectivity on your own situation. And so I think that's when you need a really good performance team who's calling the shots for you. Mm-hmm. I think by the time I got to a place where I couldn't carry on, I wouldn't be able to make that decision myself. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would ride myself to oblivion. Um, but I've just been there so many times. And um, and it and it's interesting because it's only when you're sort of back here, having a conversation about it with a nice cup of coffee in your hand that you sort of think, um, yeah, how did I do that? Because I was obviously hurting beyond imaginable, and you know I was sleep deprived, and it's not like you're. Often athletes focus on the light at the end of the tunnel. They think, well, I can endure pain and suffering because it will soon be over. Mm-hmm. The switch with ultra endurance is you have to be motivated because of what you're doing, not mm-hmm. the idea it's soon going to be over. So if you're doing an Ironman or running a marathon or, or doing a sportif, which is going to be over in a day, mm-hmm. you can put yourself through a hell of a lot of type 2 fun, you know, the stuff that completely ruins you. But ultimately, that night, you're going to have a shower and look back and fondly remember mm-hmm. what you achieved. That's the real sort of career-defining, life-affirming stuff. But with ultra-endurance, with big expeditions, your, your focus has to switch to what you're doing because mm-hmm. the light at the end of the tunnel is way too far away. It's months away. So if, if you're only working towards a time when you're not doing what you're doing, mm-hmm. you quickly get freaked out by it. It's interesting comparison that, that, that uh, you make there. And now, Mark, a little bit earlier, you, you, you touched on the point where that after obviously nearly three months of, of cycling and pushing your body and mind to the limit, uh, you had to adjust to your life after this whole challenge from a physical point of view. What about from a mental perspective? You've got to correlate the two. Mm-hmm. Um, let me quickly touch on the physical and then we'll come straight back to, the, to yeah. what's going on in the head. Um, the, the physical side, the issue was I hadn't really walked for two and a half months mm. and so when i first stopped i well, i did a dexa scan full body x-ray bone density the works my bone density was down wow. because i hadn't walked i hadn't been weight bearing i hadn't had any impact through my legs so and you know when you're time trialing you know your hips hips are rotated fours your shoulders are in you know you, you're you know it's a pretty it's a pretty bad position mm. and so i could happily ride 400 kilometers but if you'd asked me to walk 10k I probably would have struggled. Mm-hmm. And so there was real normalizing to be done in terms of the, the physical training, just mm-hmm. to, to be able to stand upright and sort myself out. Mm-hmm. Um, so whilst all that was going on, uh, I mentioned before, you know, how you kind of tweak out a little bit when you come back. I think as brutal as it is when you're out in an ultra-endurance race, it's a simple routine. There's ride time, sleep pattern, food and hydration. Mm-hmm. That's basically it. And that's the four thing, inputs you can affect on your ride. And then when you come home, you know, it doesn't matter how fulfilling your life is. You know, I've got two beautiful kids, my wife, I've got, 
you know, friends and family, I'm, I'm in a good place. But equally, life's very confusing and a bit, um, it just doesn't have that, 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 that wonderfully sort of simple purpose that an expedition or a race does. I've never found anything else in life that, that's got that. And again, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure a lot of the listeners will understand that. You know, you can be very fulfilled in many things you do in life, but but sport and racing just gives you that clarity and that space. And so when you come back mm. and you've put yourself under that pressure, and I talked before about the endorphins and, and the, the the cortisol and you know what, what your body is going through, mm. it's not like you come back to normality in one fell swoop and you just need a good night's sleep. It's, it's it's mental. It's crazy, and I think that's compounded when you're in the public eye. Mm. You know, and I'm talking to the world's press every day, or I'm meeting fans, I'm meeting the public, and they're just ecstatic. You know, they're just head over heels, and they just assume that I'm going to be living on cloud nine. I'm just going to be the happiest man on earth. And when you don't feel that, you know, when you feel quite a blue and a bit kind of unsure and a bit unhappy with things, and can't quite figure out your own thoughts about what you've just done mm. and then you're meeting people who are reflecting on what you've done you, you feel very alone with that and, and I think that sort of having a public profile and then you know as I say struggling mentally is is, is something which a lot of pro athletes and and, 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 and anyone with a public mm. profile it doesn't talk about a lot you know mm. you see these athletes coming off the back of the Olympic Games or off sport and it just looks like a bunch of roses it just looks mm-hmm. like but we, we all have mental health you know, then there's no, there's nothing wrong with talking about that, and I think it's hugely helpful to address the fact that if you put yourself under a lot of stress, there's going to be an equal and opposite. There's going to be a period of time where you need to come to terms with that, mm-hmm. and it's there's no bad thing. There's nothing negative about that. You know, finding time with your family, having a different mindset, creating space is so important because you know none of us are superhuman. None of us are psychologically so tough that we can just switch from one to another. Such a fascinating insight uh, there, Mark, uh, how one has to not just deal with the physical adjustment after completing a challenge, but also that mental side of it. Well, moving on from this challenge, Mark, of the round the world that you did and you broke the records, you seem to enjoy breaking records because when you did your Africa Solar Challenge uh, cycling from Cairo to Cape Town, uh, you did it in uh, 42 days and you shattered that previous record by a whole 17 days. What is it about solo efforts, though, that you love the most? I guess I've done both. I've done big solo, I've done big team. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, the simple part is you can't fall out with yourself too badly for too long. When you're out there on your own, there's a wonderful simplicity about it, isn't mm-hmm. there? I've learned a huge amount by joining teams, ocean rowing and mountaineering and doing other expeditions. Mm-hmm. I think when you're bike racing over big distances, mm-hmm. it'd be quite, because it is, it is solo sport and you're ultimately not allowed to draft, it immediately takes it, I mean, it immediately, immediately makes it a completely different record if you do have a team with you Mm. um so i think a lot of people would be freaked out by the idea of doing big solo trips but trust me when you get out there you just fall into a completely different mindset you know it's the friendship of strangers you meet people along the way i mean even down africa where i was going as fast as i could Mm -hmm. you know the story was really the amazing people through you know places like sudan ethiopia kenya tanzania i mean just extraordinary the friendship of strangers through that that Mm -hmm. great continent i love that ride so I took that record from 59 days down to 41 days, 10 hours, 22 minutes. Mm. And, you know, I'm very proud of what we did there. Uh, so I rode the bike, but I've still got a team. You know, I've still got, you know, my coaches, the the performance team, my logistics team back in the UK making something like this happen. Literally sort of looking down the road and making sure nothing's going to slow me down mm. and uh, and the whole broadcast side as well. So. I think on social media, these projects look a lot simpler than they actually are. Mm. But um, I'll tell you something, you know, I've been to 
130 countries in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. If I was to go back to, to, to relive one adventure, maybe with my kids, I'd go back to Africa. Hmm. I loved it. Wow, amazing. And I don't know if you've heard of uh, the adventurer by the name of uh, Rian Mansa. He circumnavigated Africa by bicycle. And yeah. it, it took him over two years to complete this. His route was obviously uh, not as direct as yours. However, you both have shared the same experience of some of the toughest environments on the continent. What were some of those scarier moments for you? Yeah, you've got, got some crazy extremes. And... Um, you know, certainly some some pretty wild conditions coming down through the Sahara with the with the heats and the luckily tailwinds at that point. Mm-hmm. Starting in the starting in the north, the challenge sadly through Egypt is just some of the the police state and the bureaucracy and making sure you can um, you can have the freedom to have an adventure. I mean, I mm-hmm. tended to find the people I met were wonderful, but it's just having the freedom to get through the police police checkpoints and 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 stay on target, especially mm-hmm. if you're pushing time through Sudan and through the Sahara. I mean, yeah extraordinary everything you wished it would be but mm-hmm. great roads you know surprisingly phenomenal roads so if you've got the winds with you you can fly what you don't realize then the moment you leave sudan and climb into ethiopia it is another world i have never crossed a border and seen such cultural and geography change you're straight into the ethiopian highlands up to three and a half thousand meters so you go from you go from riding and it's hard to imagine rain when you're in the sahara desert mm-hmm. to being up in the highlands and then dropping through you know jungle terrain through the blue nile gorge these phenomenal climbs and it's just one of the most challenging geographies i've ever cycled through when i when i got south of addis the the road ran out so from from the southern ethiopian stretch through to myali and about nyanuki on the on the on the kenyan equator it was dirt roads Mm. now interestingly that's now mainly all been tarred in the last two and a half years so that so the record that i set in 41 days I think you could definitely go sub 40 now. If anyone's out there listening and thinking, mm-hmm. I, I want to crack at this, mm-hmm. then, then do it. The, the, the Africa record, which I still hold, I would love to see people go for because that 800 kilometers, about 500 miles of dirt road, which I had my slowest miles in, mm-hmm. is, is pretty much all good tar now. So that, to think, think about that, there is an unbroken ribbon of tar from Cairo to Cape Town to be raced. Well, there you go. For all our adventure enthusiasts out there, there's a record waiting to be broken for you. Now, Mark, well, your Africa Solo Challenge, it was done in 2015. Five years prior to that, you cycled the Americas from Alaska to southern Argentina, which took a little bit longer than your Africa Solo. It took you 268 days to complete that journey, but it was made into a brief brilliant BBC documentary series. How did this compare to your challenge in Africa, though? I guess it was, I mean, it was entirely different. But um, I'd, I'd just come off the back of the world the first time. Mm-hmm. And I'd avoided mountains going around the world because they'd slow you down. So the purpose of the America's expedition was a journey all about the mountains. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be the first person to climb the two highest peaks. Mm-hmm. So you've got Denali in Alaska and uh, Aconcagua in Argentina. So the, the two highest outside of the Himalayas. Mm-hmm and try and get between them within a single climbing season. So you've got 13,000 miles of, of pedaling and two big climbs. So to start in the north with a really interesting climb, you know, over 6,000 meters, but a, an Arctic mountain all glaciated, you're roped up with a team, it's, in, it's, it's tough. I think Denali is one of the most underestimated mountains. And uh, in comparison, Aconcagua in the middle of Argentina is, is, is much higher, but it's, um, it's a more straightforward climb. It's less technical. Mm. Um, but still to transition off the bike and onto the climbs made a really interesting journey and whilst there was a time pressure to get between the climbs I had more time to get off the bike and um, and film interesting stories mm. so I mean 
that's my slowest trip yet. You know, for nine months, I averaged about seven mi- 70 miles a day. Mm-hmm. So if I if I did a lot more than that, then occasionally I took a day off and got stuck into the most amazing stories, just, mm-hmm. you know, going ranching in Montana or filming bullfighting in Mexico, which was not my idea of fun, but interesting mm-hmm. to see different cultures and, and just getting a snapshot of, of the places I was going through. I mean, you're so connected on a bike. You're so aware of the world around you. But... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it is it is nice occasionally to have an excuse to stop, and mm-hmm. it's such a privilege to film moments which you know are going to be seen by millions of people. You know, yeah. you think, well, this is unique, but it's mine to share. Mm. And and what would you say, though, Mark, was the greatest lesson that you've taken away from not only cycling these continents, but but all of your ventures? Did some of the experiences change you at all as a person? I mean, considering at uni I studied economics and politics, you know, development economics, um, you know, international politics. You know, I thought I knew the world because I'd read books. I I thought I understood the people, the places, the cultures and it's, you know, it's only when you go back at the grassroots on the speed of a bicycle Mm. you know, it's that sense of, you know, I used to paint the world like the newspapers do you know, it's dangerous, it's safe, this is good, this is bad, Mm -hmm. that's not the world Mm. people are genuinely good but there's, there's you know, things can go wrong anywhere and you know, if I was to, if I was to reflect on two of my favourite places last decade, they'd be Iran and Sudan not because they're places I want to move my family to tomorrow, but because, you know, they're the most different from what I expect them to be. They're incredible. People are amazing. And, um, yeah, you need to be streetwise. You need to be savvy. You need to be careful. But, 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 but really, you know, if you've never met your neighbors, you don't trust them. And the more you travel, the more you realize there is to see. And the more you realize that, you know, as long as you've got the right mindset and, you know, the way you are with people, um, you know, the, the world is an incredibly good and open place. And, when you, you know, I've pedaled around the world twice now, um, at the speed of 78 days, it makes the world feel a heck of a lot smaller. It makes, you know, it does, for me, connect the world pretty tightly. Mm. So when, we, when, when we're used to living in our own communities, in our own bubbles, it's quite helpful to get on our bike sometimes and just cycle somewhere else, as opposed to flying there. Because when we fly somewhere, we drop in and then we tend to, you know, whether on work or on a holiday, just talk about how different it is. Talk mm. about all the... the, all the how it, you know, the culture, the the, the clothes, the, the the food, the the manners, everything is different from where we're from. Mm-hmm. If you cycle there, then you see those incremental changes. You see how things, you, so you join the dots. You you, you make the similarities as mm-hmm. opposed to the, the the difference. So so for me, it's it, you know, it's been such a positive thing. Yes, I've been out there as an athlete trying to smash records, but mm-hmm. it's fundamentally change the way I see the world. Oh, amazing. Now, we've obviously now touched on the three major cycling adventures that you've been on, Mark. You've obviously been on a whole lot more other ones. But from these three, each of them, you, you wrote some brilliant books documenting each experience. Why did you feel the need to write uh, each of these books? I love writing. I love documenting. Um, you know, and it, first and foremost, I'm a TV broadcaster. But the challenge with television is, you know, I, I might film part of these trips and have crews joining me for others. Mm-hmm. But then it's made by a production team. Uh, it's truncated. You know, documentaries jump between big sections and then it's put out. A book is your story, mm. your words, untruncated, unabridged. And it's, 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 it's very personal. If a book was never published, it's still my first person account of what happened, mm. you know, for my kids, my grandkids and forever and a day. And I always feel like when people come and meet me at events, for the millions of people that see the documentaries and maybe the hundreds of thousands that read the books, it's the readers, it's the people who have invested the time to, to read my stories mm. that, that, that really connect. Um, so documentaries are great because you get to speak to a ton of people. 
but books are personal, and you know, books are books last forever. So yeah, I, I've just I've just finished writing around the world in eighty days, mm-hmm. and um, it was a really tight schedule to get it done, but. Uh, quite cathartic for me because when you're out there I said it before you know you're suppressing the emotions there's never a moment where you're not racing whereas when you come back and write the book that's when you get to think about stuff that's when you laugh and you cry and you do all the stuff you should have done at the time but you don't because you're racing well the three books they are fascinating reads now Mark some of our listeners they might not know that in addition to being an accomplished cyclist you also an ocean rower you touched on that a bit earlier I mean you've you joined a team of six in 2011 and you rode through the Canadian Arctic that must have been quite an experience and then a year later you attempted to to row the Atlantic Ocean but ended up capsizing you and you all had to be rescued there how does rowing and these challenges compare to your immensely successful cycling career I think rowing and cycling are are pretty comparable as sports it's relatively easy to transition between the two mm-hmm. for sure there's you know for some for, for some particularly scrawny uh road racers <laughs> they might struggle with the upper body but, mm-hmm. but but ultimately there's it's it's well documented that if you're a good all-rounder on the bike you can probably transition to be a pretty good rower mm. um but um my interest was very simple i'd cycled around the world and i wanted to join the dots I wanted to cross the oceans. I wanted to do the other bits in between. All land-based circumnavigations are 18,000 miles, whereas the equator is 24,901 miles. So to do it properly, you really need to cross the oceans. So I committed a bunch of years to, to figuring that much out. Um, I learned in an odd place, as you pointed out. You know, I, I, I filmed a crew rowing further north than anyone's ever gone before, mm-hmm. which was pretty spectacular. I mean, a real bittersweet success. You know, you, sh- you shouldn't be able to do that. You shouldn't be able to row through the Nunavut territory of Canada, through the ice fields and the, and the islands um, to to where we did. But, you know, now, a number of years on, you could sail up there every summer holiday. So the world's changing fast. Um, and then the Atlantic capsize for me was the big turning point because this was, again, me learning more about the oceans to figure out how to do the Indian and the Pacific as well. Mm-hmm. And it was out there that we, yeah, we day 28, so close to the finish, we capsized and spent 14 hours fighting for our lives. Mm-hmm. And the truth of the matter is, even if I wished to carry on rowing oceans, um, there's no way I'd put my wife and my family through that again. Mm. You know, you've got to be selfish to be an athlete, but there's a limit. And mm-hmm. there's the best part of a day where they didn't know if we were alive or dead. And to come back from that and survive it, mm-hmm. I drew a pretty clear line under that. And I've got mm-hmm. a very, you know, for me, it's about exposure. How likely things to go wrong, and if they do go wrong, how serious are the consequences? I think what I'm doing these days, mm-hmm. uh, I'm pushing myself harder and harder as an athlete, but the exposure is less. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not doing some of the high altitude mountaineering. I'm not doing some of the ocean rowing. Where if things go wrong, you tend to not come home. Mm. Scary thought that. Well, finally, Mark, uh, we have to end it at some point. I wish we could carry on speaking, but uh, the listeners and I, I'm sure we're all interested to know what's the next big challenge. You mentioned right at the start that there's nothing on the cards right now, but but how, how do you go on to top an epic adventure of cycling around the world in record time? I mean, do you try to break your own record or do you try to look at doing something completely different? Yeah, do something different. <laughs> when you've got a public profile and you're on the telly, it's, it's, nobody else is going <laughs> to, everyone's just going to keep asking you to do the same thing. So it takes, it takes confidence to reimagine and redefine your career. Otherwise, you just keep doing the same stuff. No, I've, I've, I've said it and I meant it. I will not cycle around the world again. Mm-hmm. I, I would help anyone break my record. I, I, I would have the utmost respect for anyone who's got the resolve to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm having fun. You know, I'm really enjoying life at the moment. I've got a beautiful young family. I've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old, and I need to spend as much time with them. 
I've been uh, racing odd bicycles. I mentioned before um, I was racing. So a few weeks ago, I went for the, the one of the oldest British uh, cycling world records, which is the, the penny farthing hour record. So mm-hmm. think of the hour record set by Bradley Wiggins. Mm-hmm. Now, the, 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 on a penny farthing, if you need to imagine what that is, a 56-inch wheel, no air in your tires, no brakes, mm-hmm. and you're racing around a velodrome. I mean, this thing is ridiculous um so the record was set in 1886 so myself and some buddies went for that a few weeks ago um so yeah i'm 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 having fun wonderful well mark keep having fun i mean there are many great cyclists around the world and from different generations but your name is definitely near the top of that list thank you for joining us on the hardest nails podcast and we look forward to seeing what that next possible record-breaking challenge will be for sure come I'll, i'll come back and tell you all about it